long. Living in joy is difficult in a daunting world, isn't it? Living a joyful life in a hard and cursed world is a seemingly impossible reality. Just this week in our community, we have experienced a tragedy that is unimaginable. We see a child hit by a school bus. And we know, we know, don't we? The driver and his family, the child's family, the way that they see the world has been altered forever. The way that they think about the world has been altered forever. The way that they understand their lives has been altered forever. And we see tragedies like that. And what we all understand is that that very tragedy may be lurking around the corner in our own lives. That this life is daunting. And we read reports of these things and we hear stories of these things. And then they even get so close as our own community. And then we think, next week it could be my child. Next week it could be my car. Next week it could be my house. Next week we may have cancer. Next week we may face distress. Next week my wife may have an affair. Next week, next week, next week. And this world taunts us with devastation. This world taunts us with, ma- with tragedy around every corner. You know, one of the things that they have found with social media is that people who are extremely active on social media are way more likely to have anxiety and depression. And at least one of the reasons for this is because we are exposed to tragedy at an unparalleled rate, aren't we? Tragedy has always been present in the world, but we didn't always know about it. But now we see tragedy on every click, on every page and every tragedy is taunting us. Maybe you're next. Maybe you're next. Maybe your life will fall apart next. Maybe all of it will spiral out of control next for you. Maybe you will unravel. And so we're left. How in the world? How in the world can we actually have any hope of living a joyful life in such a daunting world? And that's what Paul is talking about this morning. That's what Paul is talking about this morning. So if you turn with me uh, now to Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three. Over the next two weeks, we're gonna be looking at verses one through 11. So this week we'll look at primarily at verses one through six. And then next week we'll look at verses seven through 11. So if you have that, Philippians chapter three, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Verse one says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. One of the things that we've discovered about Paul in the book of Philippians is that Paul is more concerned about the joy of the Philippians than he is his own joy. You'll remember back to what he says in chapter one. He says, if it's up to me, if it's up to me, I would like to die and go be with Jesus. If it's up for me, to, to die is gain for me. So if I have my preference, my preference is to end all of this suffering, to end all of these chains, to get out of this taunting world and to be able to go and to be in glory with Christ, to be well with Christ, to be in unity with Christ. He said, but, but, but it's not what's best for you. It's not what's best for you. What's best for you is that I stay here, I remain here and I seek your progress and I seek after your joy. So what Paul is saying is I'm gonna put my joy on the shelf for a little while, my full joy, my, my ultimate joy on the shelf so that I can share my joy with you. I want you, the church at Philippi, to know the fullness of joy that is available to you in Christ. And so he comes here in chapter three and he opens up by saying rejoice in the Lord rejoice in the Lord. And so he's teaching them how it is to live a joyful life, how they can know what it's like to live in joy. And so he tells them specific. Now he uses the word Lord to reference Christ, doesn't he? And what you have to understand is to use the word Lord would be very common in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. They were a part of the Roman Empire. They were all considered naturalized Roman citizens. And so what they were very accustomed to doing was referring to their emperor, to Nero as Lord, as Kyrios. And so they would go and they would say, yes, Lord, your will, Lord, whatever the sovereign would have for us, Lord. They wanted things to go well with the sovereign. They wanted things to go well with the emperor because then it would go well with them. In other words, if the if the sovereign was joyful, if the sovereign was glad, then they had the opportunity to be joyful. They had the opportunity to be glad. And so what Paul is doing is he's doing a turn of phrase here that's incredibly powerful. He's, doing, he, he's flipping over the concept in their minds and he's saying, look, primarily you are not Roman citizens primarily through Christ. Now you are adopted and naturalized citizens of almighty God. You are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so now you serve a greater Lord. Now you serve a greater sovereign. You serve the sovereign before whom Nero will bow and confess with his tongue that he is his Lord. So don't worry about finding your gladness in Nero. 
Don't worry about finding your gladness in your citizenship in Rome. Don't worry about finding your gladness in your affluence. Don't worry about finding your gladness in easier circumstances. Don't worry about finding favor with men. No, 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 no. Be glad in God. Be glad in God. And church family, if we are to have any hope of living a joyful life in a daunting world, it must be founded upon being glad in God. To find our joy again and again in a sovereign that is benevolent, in a sovereign that is kind, but in a sovereign that is sovereign nonetheless and in control of all of the things that we face and in all of the experiences that we have and in all of the hardships that come our way and in tomorrow and whatever hardship it will bring. That we don't find our joy in Congress and we don't find our joy in the president, and we don't find our joy in voting the right way or having the, the best elections. We find our joy in one who is far, far greater, one before whom every Congress will bow and every president will confess that he, he is their Lord. Adversity had come to the door of the Philippians, you see. Adversity had come to the door of the Philippians. And if, if they wanted reasons to be discouraged, if they wanted reasons to be down, they had plenty of them. Uh, probably you can relate to that situation, right? There are very few times in our lives that if we need a, a reason to turn negative, if we need an, a reason to be discouraged, if we need a reason to be upset that we can't find one. Typically, our circumstances and typically our lives are set up as such and life in the church is no different where if we want to be discouraged, if we want to grumble, if we want to be divided, if we want to be frustrated, if we need just a good old-fashioned reason to vent and just let somebody have it, we can find them, can't we? Life was no different for the Philippians. Here they were, their, their missionary was in jail. Their messenger, Epaphroditus, that they had sent, he had went in honor of the Lord and he was very near to death. They had opposition arising in the church, grumbling and, and grumpiness in the church. They had, uh, they had divisions among them. They were trying to honor the Lord and trying to do all of the right things and to do them all of the right ways. And yet it didn't seem to be going well with them. It didn't seem to be happening the way they thought it should be happening. Life was harder than they believed that life should be. You ever had that experience? Have you ever just woke up and just thought, why is it always so hard? I thought, I thought that if I offered my marriage to the Lord, that my marriage would be always joyful and always easy and always simple. And yet it just feels so hard. I thought that if I endeavored to raise my kids to love Christ, that they would love Christ and that it would be a fun and joyful experience. Sure, there would be discipline. Sure, there would be stuff. But I thought, I thought it would be better. And it's just so hard. See, we hope for lives without adversity, but it's just not realistic. It's just not real. And adversity is where you will learn what you actually believe about God. Adversity will clarify your theology. Adversity will be the proving ground of your faith. Adversity will show whether or not you have confidence in the sovereignty of God or if you have greater confidence in your own ability to reign over every situation in your life. 
You see, like us, as Philipp, the Philippians had as many reasons as they needed to be discouraged, but they had even more reasons to be glad. Even greater reasons to rejoice. And I find it true in my life that there are always reasons of which I can turn negative. There are always reasons for which I can doubt God's goodness. There are always reasons in which I can doubt God's faithfulness. Yet, 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 at the very same time, there are always far greater reasons for me to be encouraged. There are always far greater reasons for me to be positive. There are always far greater reasons for me to see the faithfulness of God and to remember the kindness of God and to assume, assume that He is going to be great and gracious yet again again today. See, they could look at Paul's chains and they could be discouraged. Or they could see it from Paul's perspective and see that God used the chains of Paul to advance the mission of Paul and to penetrate the entire Praetorian guard with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They could see Epaphroditus's sickness as some kind of omen against them, some kind of superstitious bad luck or they could see Epaphroditus's illness as being sustained, of having him sustained by the hand and kindness of God so that he could accomplish what he is, be sent back and be sent back a kinder, more humble and gracious man himself. They could see the opposition in Philippi as being, as being uh, the, the absence of God, or they can see the opposition in Philippi as being the proclamation that God will not be defeated by any man at any time, no matter how wise, no matter how charismatic, no matter how strong, the true gospel will reign over all. They lived under the emperor Nero, who famously burnt Rome to the ground and blamed it on the Christians and then lit the Christians up as torch, torches in persecution. And they could look at their situation of, of living as Christians under such a wicked emperor as that, who was constantly going to threaten them with the threat of death. Or they could look to the sovereign Christ, to their Lord, seated upon his throne and remember that as he was raised, so they will be raised. See, there was a reason to be encouraged and there was a reason to be discouraged. But it boiled down to who, what did they trust? What did they trust? You see, you can always look down and grumble or you can always look up and praise. You can always look down and be discouraged or you can always look up and be put at peace. It's human nature to look down, isn't it? We step out. On a, on a ledge and our legs begin to shake and your dad can be there in the background saying, son, don't look down, son, don't look down, son, don't look down. And the very first thing that you do when you get up to the edge is look down, right? You can be walking across one of those high ropes courses and you know that you're buckled in and you know that you have a harness and you know that really and truly it's just walking like you always walk except, except you look down and you think I'm gonna die. And every trembling step and every shaky foot you feel as though you are on the edge of your own demise. For how many of us does that describe the way that we live? For how many of us does that describe the way that we live? We zone in, we zoom in on the problems in our lives. 
We have problems all around us. We have threats all around us. We have circumstances all around us that are calling for us to look down and be afraid. We have a million reasons to be afraid. There are a thousand things that could happen tomorrow that could completely destroy so many of the things that are important to us. And so we can go in and we have the whole time the Lord saying, keep your eyes on me. Keep focused on me. Keep looking toward me. Don't look down. And yet what do we do? We look down. We look down. We hear of a tragedy and we assume it's coming to our house. We think of a worst case scenario and we assume that worst case scenario, irrational as it may be, is going to happen to us. You see, you can't live a joyful life looking down in a daunting world. You can't live a joyful life looking down in a daunting world. No, the only hope that we have for a durable joy is to have a source of joy that is more steady than our troubles. The only hope that we have for a durable joy is to have a source of joy that will flood our lives with His grace, that will fill our lives with His confidence. You see, we can look down and we can see the hardship that may come. In fact, we can look down and we can see the hardship that is there and we can play that out over the next 10 to 20 years and we can drive ourselves crazy. You know what I'm talking about. Or we can look up to the sovereign Lord and we can rejoice in the Lord for not even a sparrow falls out of the sky that he's not aware of, that he knows of the most insignificant creature when it falls down from the sky. Do you not think that he loves you? Do you not think he is ministering to you? Do you not think that he cares for you? See, choosing joy is as simple and as difficult as choosing to trust God. Choosing joy is as simple and as difficult as choosing to trust God. And so this morning, don't look down. Don't look down. Don't look down at the trouble that's knocking on your door. Don't look down at the hardship that's in your marriage. Don't look down at the difficulty in your parenting. Don't look down at the tragedy that it may be hanging around your corner. No, brothers and sisters, look up. Look up. Look up to the Christ that is seated upon his throne. Look up to the Christ that is returning for his church. Look up for the one that has already secured a place for you, that has already declared his love for you, and that is coming back for you. Look up because there is one, there is one who is far greater than our troubles. There is one that is far greater than our hardship that has already promised that as many tears as you shed, as many hard days as you have, as many difficult circumstances as you face, that he will take them as the threads of providence and he will weave them together for your very own good because brothers and sisters, he is sovereign. He is sovereign. So be glad, be glad glad that you don't face it alone. Be glad that you can look up and God is there. Be glad and rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. The second way that we're able to live a joyful life is that you must also be vigilant against counterfeits. You must be vigilant against counterfeits. Verse two, he says something that might strike you as a bit odd. 
Verse two, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So he's calling for us to be vigilant here against counterfeit gospels. Now, a counterfeit gospel is any way that we attempt to have life apart from Christ. It's any, it's any attempt that we have to understand God and to be right with God, except through the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we have here is a particular counterfeit gospel that comes into view. It's something that we know in the New Testament as the Judaizers, the Judaizers. Now, what the Judaizers believed is they believed that, you could, that, that Christianity was real. They, they bought into Jesus was the Messiah. But what they believed is that to become a Christian, you had to first become a Jew. You had to first become a Jew. So, so if you have the Philippians are primarily a Gentile congregation. They're, they're primarily people that did not inherit the promise of the revelation. They, the, the Messiah was not going to be sent through their lineage. And so what the Judaizers would say, yes, you can enjoy our Savior. Yes, you can enjoy our Messiah so long as you were circumcised. So long as you begin to eat the right things and avoid the wrong things. So, so long as you practice the, the right rituals. As long as you do all of the right things. As long as you become a Jew, you can also become a Christian. You have the opportunity to celebrate and to enjoy this Messiah. Now, if we are honest, having read the Old Testament, does that have an appeal to it? It sounds appealing in some ways, doesn't it? In fact, it sounds very close to the truth. This is why Paul tells us to look out. You don't have to look out for things that are easily seen, do you? You, you don't have to look out for Satan coming to you like a, like a fiery red flame with a pitchfork and a pointy tail. Like, you don't have to look out for him, right? Because it's not deceptive. But our enemy is actually deceptive. And false gospels look appealing to us. False gospels are enticing to us. False gospels are very difficult sometimes for us to see. And so Paul is saying, be vigilant, be on the lookout. Look out for these false gospels that have the ring of truth, but lack the power of truth. Look out for these false gospels because you see what the Judaizers didn't believe? They didn't believe that Jesus was enough. Now they, they, they cloaked it in religious terms. They cloaked it in spiritual talk. They looked incredibly pious, incredibly righteous, but they believed that salvation required Jesus plus circumcision. They believed that to remain in Christ, to remain in the kingdom of God required Jesus plus all the festivals, Jesus plus all the right foods. You see, they didn't believe that Jesus was sufficient to save. They didn't believe that Jesus was enough in and of himself. And Paul says anathema to them, anathema. They are dogs. They are evildoers. They are mutilating themselves. The condemnation that Paul speaks over them is filled with startling irony, startling irony. You'll remember back in Matthew chapter 15, when we pre there, there's a strange passage there. Uh, when, when you have a, a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician woman, she comes and she approaches Jesus asking for his mercy. And he says, why would I share the Lord's, uh, the Lord's table with a dog? You remember, you remember that? This was a frequent term that was used in a derogatory sense of Gentiles. 
In other words, what the Jewish people, what the people of God believed is they believed that the Gentiles ate unclean things, lived unclean, were unclean people ethnically and undeserving of God. And so they thought of the most disgusting creature that they could think of. You remember, they could not touch anything that was dead, right? And what do dogs eat? They eat things that are dead. They're scavengers just eating roadkill on the sides of the road. And so they would go and they would say, you dogs, you filthy, unclean, unworthy dogs. Do you see what Paul's doing? Do you see what Paul's doing? It, it, it would have cut them to the soul. He's saying, you think, you think in your minds that you are above the Philippians. The, 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 the false gospels, the Judaizers believe that they have a favor with God that you do not have. They believe that they are the righteous of God and that you are the dogs, but they, I want you to understand Philippians, they are the dogs. They are the ones that offer sacrifice, but no mercy. They are the ones that offer their rituals, but no heart. They want to know God, but they can't see God and they don't love God. No, the Gentiles, the Gentiles are the people of God. You, the Judaizers, are the dogs. He, he, he begins to expand that. Then he begins to explain why they are the dogs. You see, they thought that their works of righteousness, the, the rituals that they were doing, the circumcision that they had experienced, all of the things that they were bringing in and adding to the gospel, they thought those things made them righteous. But do you see what he does? He says, no, the works in your life, the, the things that you are doing in your life are evil, that your works of righteousness are really works of evil. You know, you can do things that are in the Bible in a way that makes them evil. Did you know that? You can do things in the Bible that actually declare your independence from God, not your dependence upon him. You can, you can live out the 10 commandments in such a way that sets you apart as being self-righteous instead of Christ dependent. That's what the Judaizers were doing. They were doing works of righteousness that actually showed and proved that they were dogs because the works of righteousness were actually works of evil. He says, you think you mutilate, you, you think you circumcise yourself and you do well. You think that little knife on the eighth day sets you aside as a child of God. I tell you that you mutilate yourself like the pagans. I tell you that you take the knife and you cause yourself to bleed and it is not blood of righteousness. It is blood that is unclean and unfit before the Almighty. He brings into our minds 1 Kings chapter 18. You remember the false prophets of Baal are gonna call down fire on their altar and Elijah is there and he's gonna call down fire on his altar. And do you remember what the false prophets do before Elijah, shows, uh, Elijah calls the fire of heaven down? It says they begin to scream out because the heavens are silent. They begin to scream out because God isn't answering them. They begin to, to cry and cry and what they begin to do is they begin to cut themselves. They begin to slice their skin and scream in agony as blood pours from their, their, their bodies, all hoping to catch the eye of their false God, all hoping to in some way please these pagan gods. This is what, my, this is what Paul says the Judaizers are doing, that they are the alleged people of God. They are the supposed people of righteousness. And yet like the pagans, they cut themselves believing that their God is so, is so, 
filthy. Their God is so uncaring. Their God is so, so gross that he will not love them anyway. He says, no, that's not who they are. That's not who they are. See, they appear godly, but are selfish. They look zealous, but are foolish. They sound faithful, but are faithless. The gospel that we believe matters. Do you understand that? The gospel that we believe matters. Your theology matters. Your understanding of the scriptures matter. To be theologically adrift is to drown your own joy. To be theologically adrift is to drown your own joy. The Judaizers added to the gospel so they could promote their own definition of godliness, their own definition of righteousness. And I wonder what we have added to the, go- to the gospel to promote our own definition of righteousness, to promote our own definition of godliness. I wonder what we are adding to God's word that, the, that Paul would call evil doing, evil works, as we declare that the word of God is insufficient, as we declare that we are wiser than the scriptures, as we declare that we have a a clearer definition of righteousness and godliness than the scriptures themselves. I wonder if we are adding our politics so that God is either right-winged or left-winged. I wonder if we're adding social and racial and ethnic biases to the gospel so that we can we can justify our own prejudices. I wonder if we're requiring the drug addict to clean up first, the drunk to dry out first. I wonder if we're requiring the rebellious child to come home and obey first before they can come to the gospel. You see, the true gospel doesn't call you to measure up first. The true gospel doesn't set up standards saying that you must measure up now and you must measure up forever. Instead, in the gospel, Jesus Christ has done the measuring for us. Jesus Christ has met the standard in our place. He met it for one time. He has met it for all time. He satisfies it so that we can come into the kingdom and he satisfies it so that we will remain in the kingdom. The true gospel doesn't call you to measure up. The true gospel calls you to rest. The true gospel calls you to rejoice. The true gospel calls you to look upon the sovereign Christ again and again and to rejoice in the Lord, not to declare your own standard of righteousness. I wonder this morning, does your gospel encourage you or discourage you? Does your gospel encourage you or discourage you? When you think about what Christ requires, when you think about what Christ has done, When you think about what the Bible says, do you leave discouraged and beaten down? Do you leave discouraged and feeling as though you're a slave, unable to please his master? Or, Or does the gospel say, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, you who are oppressed and enslaved by the law, and I will set you free. Does the gospel, the gospel as you know it, the gospel as you understand it, does it restore your heart? Does it re renew your spirit? Does it bring rest to you or does it beat you down? You see, if you want to have joy, if you want to have joy in a daunting world, you got to have the true gospel. You got to have the true gospel. You got to have the gospel of rest, not the gospel of measuring up. You've got to have the gospel of hope, not the gospel of hopelessness. What does your gospel say? What does your gospel say? Finally, we see that to live a joyful life, you must be certain of who you are. 
You must be certain of who you are. Verse three, he says this, he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Do you see how what he says is, is really extraordinary? He says, we, we. Now, remember who we includes, all right? We is Paul, who as we see by his own testimony is like Hebrew of Hebrews, Jew of Jews, tribe of Benjamin, named after the first king, like, like the Jew of all Jews, scripture memorized, was a Pharisee, well-educated. And then, and then you have the Philippian Gentiles, the Philippian Gentiles. And Paul writes to these Philippian Gentiles, these who his own people have always called dogs, these who his own people have always said are unworthy of God, are too separated from God to ever have God. And he looks to them and in contrast to the dogs, in contrast to the evildoers, in contrast to those who mutilate the flesh, he says, we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. And it doesn't have anything to do with a medical procedure. It doesn't have anything to do with a scalpel. What it has to do with is the gospel of Jesus Christ that has brought us into the kingdom, that has bound us together. He looks to the Philippians and he says, you are the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. You are the nations that have been blessed and through you, the nations will be blessed. So in the face of this false gospel, what Paul wants the Philippians to see is that they can take joy in who they are. They don't have to become Jews to become Christians. They just have to come to Christ. They are the new Israel. They don't have to be circumcised. They are the circumcision. He gives us these three proofs. He's like, look, now I know that's gonna land funny with you. It feels funny me saying it, being a Jew and all. Like if, I, I know that's gonna feel weird, but, but let, me, let me show you the proof of what I'm talking about. Let me prove to you that you are the new Israel, that you are the greater Israel that God is bringing together in this day in the new covenant. First, he says that we are identified by the spirit, not by the knife. We are identified by the Spirit, not by the knife. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. Let me, let me, let me, let me go to Romans chapter, chapter two to help explain better what he says. Listen, listen to what he, he writes. Paul writes these same words in Romans chapter two, verses 28 and 29. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Did you even know this was in the Bible? For no one is a Jew who, I, I read things like this sometimes. I'm like, man, that makes sense. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. That the new Israel is not constituted by being born into the right tribe. The new Israel is constituted by being born again in the spirit of God. That the Spirit of God awakens us. It's not about ethnic markers. It's about an inward trimming in the heart. It's about an inward reality of Christ bearing fruit in us. The Spirit bearing witness to us. It's the very presence of God in us. It's the Spirit awakening our hearts to love God. It's sharpening our, he's sharpening our senses to experience God. The Spirit gives us faith to believe and joy to express and hope to cling to. The Spirit is constantly, inwardly preaching to our hearts the wonderful truth about God. The Spirit of God takes us as creatures of wrath and He turns us into children and vessels of worship. 
This is what it's talking about in Romans 12. When it says, you offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Let yourself be conformed to the will of God. Let an inward renewal take place. And when the Spirit of God comes into you, now everything that you do in your life, all in your marriage, in your parenting, in your work, in your ambitions, even in your hobbies, as you offer these things unto the Lord are spiritually pleasing acts of worship to the Almighty. And if you have the Spirit of God in you, you don't need a knife. You don't have to be mutilated. You will be clearly marked enough as a child of God. But he doesn't stop there. He gives us a second proof. Not only is it that we are identified by the Spirit and not by the knife, but we are identified by boasting in Christ, not in our achievement. Boasting in Christ and not in our achievement. Now, you have to realize this is what Paul really had to overcome. He gives us a testimony to this, doesn't he? He goes through this, this long list. He says, man, I was, I was born in the tribe of Israel. Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law of blameless. And he's listing these as, as being his birthright, as being his achievement of both of where he was born and of what he has done. So you gotta, Paul was basically a Roosevelt. You realize, like, like, like Paul in the, in, in the kingdom of Israel, he's a Kennedy, okay? He, he's a Bush. He is, a, he is one of the royal families. The Benjamites, they were actually one of the very few tribes that they could still trace their lineage all the way back. They were one of the only two tribes that remained faithful to God for the longest period of time and were uh, among the last two tribes to be exiled by the judgment of God. This is a rich heritage. Paul is walking around Hebrews that don't even know exactly which tribe they land in. And here he is. And he says, I know. Go to the courthouse and check the records. Go and talk to my mama's mama. Like, go talk to whoever you want to talk to. I am a Hebrews Hebrew. I am a Kennedy. And all of its foolishness, all of its foolishness, that I finally overcame myself. I finally overcame glorying in my heritage. I finally overcame glorying in my achievement and I realized something. I realized that any glory that is to be found is to be found in Christ. Any hope that is to be found is to be found in Christ. Any joy that is to be found is to be found in Christ. Any achievement that is to be done is to be achieved by Christ and imparted to me by His kindness, by His grace, and by His mercy. So I will not boast in myself. I will glory in Christ. And by glorying in Christ, I can have joy no matter what is happening around me because Christ isn't finished. Christ was raised. Christ is reigning and he, he is over all of this. The final, the final proof that he gives us is when he says he put, we put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. That is, we are identified by confidence in grace, not in ourselves. We are identified by confidence in grace not in ourselves. In fact, we can kind of see this as the negative summary of the first two positives that he's just said, right? Like, like, what does it mean to be born of the Spirit? What does it mean to glory in Christ? It means that you have to stop putting confidence in the flesh. It means that you have to stop trusting in your own achievement. You have to stop trusting in your own goodness. You have to stop putting your hope in what you know and in what you can do. I wonder this morning, how do you comfort the doubt that comes? 
all, all of us. If, 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 we're, we're, we're kind of an honest church. Like we're, we're not one of those churches, like we're not gonna pretend that none of us have to face doubt in the Christian life. We're not gonna pretend like it's faith, walking by faith in Christ is always easy and there's no cracks of unbelief in our life. That's not real in the life of a sinner. That's not real in a fallen and broken world. But I think what's more indicative of your faith is how you comfort those doubts. You, you see, if you would have come to Paul early in his life and you would have asked Paul, how do you know that you're, a member of the people of God. How do you know that you're one of God's children? You know what he would have said? He would have said, because I am from the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Eighth day. As to zeal, I, I am a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, I am blameless under the law. That Paul would have answered your questions. He would have comforted his own doubts by his own achievements, by his own name, by his own deeds. Paul was essentially saying, because I am always in the church, because I write a monthly check to the church, because I go to all the right conferences, because I sing all of the right songs, because I've went on mission trips and served as a deacon and been an elder, that because I teach, because I was born into the church, because I've stayed in the church when everybody else rebelled and I stayed steady. That way I know, I know I must be a child of God. But at the end of his life, at the end of his life, if you would have asked Paul, how do you know that you're a child of God? How do you know that you've been saved? Paul wouldn't have pointed point to a single thing that he had done. He wouldn't have pointed to a single thing that was true about himself. What Paul would have said is he would have said that God became flesh and he dwelt among us and he laid his life down after living a perfectly obedient life, a life under perfect righteousness. He laid his life down on a cross so that weak wretches like me might not have to lay on that very same cross. And he offered himself up to the Father and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was forsaken so that I wouldn't have to be forsaken. And Christ went and was buried in the heart of the earth and he was raised three days later. And so I know that as weak as my faith is on this day, as shaky as my belief is today, that my unbelief can be mended. My heart can be soothed because it is not about my achievements and it is not about my name. It is about one far greater who is unshakable from his throne, who is reigning today, who is raised from the dead. And I know, I know my confidence in him is well founded. This morning, I wonder how you comfort your doubt. How do you comfort your doubt? It tells you about your theology. When the doubt comes, do you begin to read off your attendance? When the doubt comes, you begin to think about how often you read your Bible or don't. When the doubt comes, you begin to think about how hot your prayer life is or it isn't. Or do you comfort your doubt with the goodness of Christ? Do you comfort your doubt by the testimony of the Spirit? Do you comfort your doubt by glorying in Christ, by trusting in grace? Do you comfort your doubt, in other words, by trusting in your own goodness or in the goodness of God? You will not find joy in this daunting world trusting in your own goodness. You will not find peace before God depending upon your own righteousness. The only hope that you have, 
And the only hope that I have is that the goodness of Christ is true and the good Christ is reigning over us all and the good Christ has brought us into eternity with where we will reign with him forever. Oh, do not trust in your own works. Do not trust in your own righteousness. There is one far greater. That, that, that is the good news, church. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at nine o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.